More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Gradual March of Artificial Intelligence Prognostications on a future with artificial intelligence, AI, range from slow and imperceptible change to a radical new world where machines rule the earth, but Michael Henlein takes the middle path. In Henlein's latest article, co-authored with Andreas Kaplan, A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence on the Past, Present and Future of Artificial Intelligence, he suggests that AI will have a gradual but increasing presence in every aspect of our lives. While there exists ample room for speculation in the rates, at and ways in which we will adopt AI, its eventual adoption is without question. According to two recent studies, AI represents the most significant commercial opportunity around the globe. By 2030, AI is expected to increase the global GDP by 14%, a margin that translates to an injection of approximately $15 trillion. To counter the popular fear that AI stands to take over in some sort of global coup, Enline demonstrates that we've coexisted and benefited from it for almost 80 years. Since its invention in World War II, AI has slowly but steadily grown into the spaces where it stands to improve our personal lives and workspaces. Enjoy this episode with Michael Henline. As you know, our focus, our editorial vision is really to provide content that allows business owners to find out how they can make their businesses last over generations, right? Like, so that's like the key to this. And I think the artificial intelligence conversation is a very important one because it poses a big challenge for businesses to understand how and when it will impact their businesses, how it will transform them, what it will mean for them and how they can befriend the technology as opposed to fear it, I would say. You know, there's a lot of misunderstandings, as we know, around yeah. AI and its development, etc. Hence, very interesting for us to discuss with you today your latest article about, like, basically the history and the provenance of AI and, and where, it's, where it is today and where it's going in the, in the near future. And I think this probably already busts one of the biggest myths, like the beginning of your article really busts one of the biggest myths or maybe misunderstandings that people have around artificial intelligence, which is that this is somehow a recent phenomenon or has only started very recently to be developed as a technology. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about like busting that first myth would be a good start, I think, is just to tell people when actually the development of artificial intelligence has begun. Yeah, so I guess... It all depends on what you define recent, right? But uh, for me or for us, the beginning of artificial intelligence essentially dates back to roughly the end of the Second World War. So let's say roughly around about 80 years. And what is interesting is you had two very interesting parallel developments, one in in Europe and one in the US at that time. Mm -hmm. So you had in the US uh, around 1940, 1942, a person called Marvin Minsky, who was a professor at MIT at the time, and who was a very big fan of science fiction stories. Mm-hmm. And a very famous science fiction artist that you probably may have heard of is, is called Isaac Asimov, and he wrote a story called Runaround, in which he lays out, among many other things, the laws of robotics. Mm-hmm. And if you have ever seen any superhero Marvel movie where some 
entity wants to destroy the world, it is usually implicitly based on these rules. And Mr. Uh, Mr. Minsky was fascinated by looking at how robots work and how they can change the world. And this has led to a whole stream of research at MIT about artificial intelligence at the time. And in parallel, on the other side of the ocean, you had this person called Alan Turing, who was a mathematician. You, many people may know him. There's a famous movie about him called The Imitation Game, hmm. who was hired by the British Army, essentially, to do something that humans were not able to do, namely breaking a code that the Germans used to communicate during the war. It's called the Enigma machine and uh, Enigma code. And what Mr. Turing did, he took a type of computer that was developed first in Poland and refined it and developed on the way the first type of personal computer able to break this type of code. I'm saying personal mm -hmm. computer, but it was literally filling an entire room. And it took an entire day to make a calculation that now your iPhone will probably take a second or two. But what was so amazing at the time for Mr. Turing was seeing that this thing, this machine, can do something that humans cannot do. Mm. And we discussed artificial intelligence uh, last time. And I mentioned, I think, at that time that humans are really not good in judging what intelligence means and what intelligence doesn't mean. So humans are... In a certain way, whenever they see a machine being able to do something that is very hard for them, they assume that the machine can also do all the things that are easy for them. Mm -hmm. So when Mr. Turing saw this machine being able to break that code, he immediately asked himself the question, but what does it mean to be intelligent and how long will it take that this machine actually becomes more intelligent than we are? Mm -hmm. And he wrote a very famous article about it in which he proposed something which is called the Turing test. And the Turing test essentially says, if you have a conversation, five minutes you talk with a person and five minutes you talk with a computer who talks back. And after these 10 minutes, you are not able to say who you talk to. You cannot able to differentiate who was the person who the computer is. Then the computer has artificial intelligence. And he proposed this as a type of, of system, as, mm -hmm. a, as a theoretical test in the 40s in this article. And it took about 20 years later in the 60s until somebody at MIT, uh, Joseph Weisbaum, developed a software that is called ELISA. ELISA was trying to replicate a therapist in your computer. And ELISA is, you can Google it, it's, it's a, there are many, many implementations now online about it. And the interesting thing of ELISA was it takes you about 30 seconds to realize that the person on the other side is not a person, but a computer. And mm. while you realize it very quickly nowadays, because nowadays we are used to our Amazon Alexas and our Google Echoes that talk to us like other people, at the time, this was amazing. And this kicked then off this whole view of artificial intelligence that we essentially see the outcomes of now. It seems to be that a lot of private businesses are still struggling to understand where and how artificial intelligence is going to play a significant role for them in optimizing their future. Now, I know that we've previously spoken about how you are actually quite conservative as well in terms of telling people where the technology is actually at and like how fast it's going and what it can actually do. Uh, now, that was quite a few months ago, though, <laughs> and things change very fast in AI. But I think it would be interesting for us to maybe just recap that a little bit and just understand, like, you know, if you today address the business owner, like, you know, where are really the points in the present? We'll talk about the future in a second. In this present moment today in 2019, 2020, 
you know, what are the things where you now say, well, AI is now a must in this area of your business and everything else is going to come over time. But like, you know, where you really feel like, okay, this area of business, there is no negotiating anymore. Okay. AI has to take over. It's an imperative now. I think um, the guiding principle when a firm decides about AI, I think should still be to start with the business problem first and then come mm -hmm. to the technological solution later. I talk to many, many firms who ask me exactly this question and who say, how can I use AI? And the question that I ask back is, well, what is your problem? Where do you have activities that generate disproportionate costs? Where you have activities where you think you could generate more revenue? What could be optimized? Let's look at your pain points. Let's put hierarchy on those pain points and let's then decide which one of these can be dealt with with AI and which ones cannot. Now, nowadays, I think AI never has off-the-shelf solutions in a way because AI is always highly customized, but there are tools that are much more standardized now than others. For example, if you have a business that deals a lot with entering information from paper into electronic format, and this may sound like a very antiquated way of thinking, but take any bank of the world. They need to enter properties of real estate transactions and of mortgages from some printout that has been done by an attorney into an Excel sheet. And they pay people to do this. And not only is this costly, but it's also error prone. Nowadays, you can essentially buy an image recognition system that does this orders of magnitude faster and much more accurate than humans. Or assume you are a company who sends contracts to its customers for signing. You print out a contract, you send it by mail to the customer, the customer has to sign it back and send it back to you. Somebody needs to ensure that whatever the customer signed is the same version that you sent to the customer. So somebody needs to compare these different documents. Nowadays, you can have software for this that can do this very automatically. Or a third example is anything related to simple customer service interactions. Mm -hmm. The amount of ability that chatbots nowadays have, and these can be chatbots that actually talk to you, this can be chatbots that support call center agents, or these can be chatbots that you find online. Their amount of understanding of natural language and responding to standard questions is amazing. Generally, we estimate that if uh, you would automate your customer service front end, around 80% of all queries can usually be addressed through artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, as they are, a lot of solutions nowadays that you still have to customize heavily, but that I think you can buy on the market and implement more or less rapidly if this is an issue that you think you're facing, uh, you're facing costs or revenue issues with. So we're still positioning it as a tool to solve a problem. This is still inherently how you think about it. Like So identify the problem and identify how the technology can help you. Arguably, we are shifting, though, obviously, towards a time, according to Kurzweil at least, where the singularity is very near. I believe he sets it at 2045, where officially like machine intelligence will overtake human, collective human intelligence. And, and the change will be so fast at such an exponential rate that we won't be able even to, to realize it. Now, first of all, question, are you a Kurzweilist and do you agree with him? <laughs> and secondly, like, you know, when do you think the shift will come between what you describe right now, whereby we use AI as a tool to solve our problems to the point where our thinking is basically defined by the possibilities that we have um, through AI? I think 
it is in this world of AI, at least as far as I see it, things change. And, and you mentioned this a minute ago, every three to six months. So mm -hmm. I would not be comfortable predicting what happens in 2021. What happens in 2045 for me is, is like, that is so far away in AI terms, it's, <laughs> it's impossible to predict. And it's very, it's actually, there's a very nice analogy. There was a very, very famous scientist in the 70s, who already in the 70s said, that it will probably take another five to eight years until AI is as smart as humans. And it clearly took decades until we have something that is not even close to as smart as humans, but that at least can mm. appear to be smart in certain activities. I think this whole AI revolution will happen much more gradually, in my view. It will mm -hmm. essentially happen in a way that more and more activities will at some point be automated. I don't think that every activity will be automated because there are some things that are just so complex to explain to an AI system or that involves so many different steps mm -hmm. that it may take a very long time to have systems powerful enough or simply be too costly to buy and maintain and customize such systems. I mean, there was a very famous um, study done about a year ago where researchers tried to train a robot to build an IKEA chair. And mm. this combination of reading instructions and using moving tools and visual recognition was so challenging that it essentially didn't really work. I'm not saying it will never work. And as I said, it's very hard to predict, but I think the evolution will happen much more gradually. And sure, there will at some point probably be a point where companies will find themselves having half or a third or two thirds of their tasks being done by AI, but it will be gradually over time, I think. Today, so as you just uh, mentioned, there are like varying scientists and varying business leaders have had varying opinions and have been pronounced about AI over the over the decades. And some were more accurate, others were totally wrong in retrospect, of course, and as I said, hard to predict. But if you today look at the landscape, like who are the thinkers, individuals, but also who are the companies that you look to where you feel like they are navigating the present of AI in a very smart way or like where you feel like, you know, you really listen to what they have to say because you feel their insights are relevant to how you see the technology developing. What I think what is very interesting in the field of AI when you look at thought leaders is that these thought leaders 30 years ago used to be in academia. So 30 years ago, I would have said, you look at MIT, you look at like the leading institutions in, let's say, in the US or in Europe. And now... I think the thought leaders are actually in companies. Mm. So I would say if you wanted to look at the best companies doing AI, you probably should look at somebody like Facebook or Google. But the problem is they do not let you look inside what they do. Mm -hmm. So it is very hard to use them as benchmarks because these are private companies and many of the some of the evolutions they do, they may share. And many of them have hired scientists who publish articles about it. But many they keep secretly for themselves. So these are certainly the companies you can look at about the potential or even the people like Elon Musk and all the universe of companies he has created. But it is very hard to get the details about it. Mm -hmm. And when you as a, as, a, as a company really want to look for help and try to find out who can help you to implement these things, what I see is there is an abundance of small firms that are highly specialized in individual tasks. Mm -hmm. And that are very, very good. I have identified in, in many different countries highly skilled people. And the problem is less to find the availability of these skills, but to find the skills in the ocean of small companies who provide extremely hyper-targeted mm. solutions. Mm. 
And that's what I see most companies struggling with right now. They struggle with identifying the right problem where I can help. And once they have identified the right problem where it can help, finding the supplier somewhere in the world that can actually provide this type of solution. And it may not necessarily be the big company. But there is naturally, like, you know, as you said, like, I think this is where it starts as well. Like, so even if a company's leadership has the willingness to implement AI wherever it makes sense, there's still the whole company culture that needs to be adjusted. So there is a severe amount, like very significant amount of education that needs yeah. to be done across all employees, across anyone who, who comes in touch with whatever um, AI will be taking over in the company as well. How do you estimate, like, today we still see a lot of fear when it comes to, like, you know, um, people associating AI with job loss, people associating AI with like a huge threat to their relevance in the workplace. Um, How do you see that shift evolving in the next few years? Do you feel like as we become more acquainted with its possibilities, that fear is going to abate? Or do you think that employers really have a responsibility to make a huge effort in education in order to make people feel secure? I think they do have to make a huge effort because it is a scary technology. Many employees will see their current jobs disappear in the form they have it now. And what you what you have nowadays, what you see in many companies is, for example, that employees are currently tasked with preparing the upcoming change in AI. A very common task mm-hmm. that many companies nowadays do is called data labeling. Assume you are a factory producing car parts mm-hmm. and you want to identify which of these car parts are defective and which ones are not. The easiest way is to hire 10 employees who look at every single part and label it manually as being defective or not, have an AI system, use all of this as an input, and then learn from it and ultimately replace those 10 employees by an automated system. Mm -hmm. And this is clearly a fear that is present, and it is clearly a fear that is justified. And the early stages of AI looked at science fiction literature as inspiration, but we can also look at science fiction literature of inspiration of what can go wrong. And there are very famous novels. The most famous one is called Snow Crash that essentially describes a world in which a very high share of the population is tasked with meaningless things and mm-hmm. who considers their work life so boring that they evade themselves into a world of virtual reality. And I think we as a society need to avoid this world and companies have a very strong responsibility of possibly even deciding of not going the full route down if AI, if this means that the company essentially disintegrates from an employee perspective and managing this fear that might be over-exaggerated, but in many cases is has a justified base in it. And this also brings us to how you, in, in your recent article, have looked at the future from a micro, meso, and macro perspective, I'd love to, you know, round up our conversation with you explaining exactly what you mean by that, because I actually think it's a very comprehensive way of looking at the various levels of implications that we might be seeing in the years to come. What we realized in our work of AI over the past years is that actually, we always talk about the market can regulate things and we should be as liberal as possible. But AI seems to be such a major and fundamental change that we actually need regulation on multiple mm-hmm. different levels. We need regulation on how to regulate AI itself, how these algorithms should be regulated. Because one day or the other, these algorithms will take decisions that impact lives in a very fundamental way. It can be decisions like how to drive self-driving cars and how to decide how to drive a car in an accident. It can be decisions of automatically analyzing x-rays and deciding who gets lung cancer treatment because he may have lung cancer and who doesn't. And it is very challenging to 
regulate AI because it's a very fast-moving target, but we need to find ways of probably defining which type of data can be used to train AI and cannot. Because if the input data is highly biased, for example, there is a very, uh, there's a very famous story that the first self-driving cars had a much easier time recognizing white faces compared to colored faces because the databases used to train these images included a highly disproportionate share of white men. Something like this may need to be regulated, for example. And that's what we call the micro perspective. On the meso perspective, I think we come back to this idea of employment. Society will have to decide whether it is acceptable that a certain share of people may no longer have a job. Probably it isn't. And if it isn't, we need to decide of how to deal with this. These raises mm -hmm. questions like universal basic income. This may raise questions like the fact, should we probably put a lid on the maximum amount of AI that firms can do? This raises a question of ongoing training of employees because massive amounts of people may need to be retrained. Somebody has to organize this. Somebody has to pay for this. And I think we need regulation in that respect too. And what I personally find most scary is the regulation on a macro and a governmental level. We all talk about fake news nowadays. And when we talk about fake news, we talk about essentially a news story that somebody has written on a blog. And over time, we have all learned that what we read online, we probably need to see with a grain of salt and understand it in a very critical way. But nowadays, it is technically totally possible to learn an AI system using, uh, let's say, pictures of Mr. Trump and make a video in which Mr. Trump declares war against Russia. We can make a video that looks as real as possible Yeah. And this video may only be online for an hour, but even an hour of deepfake can have fundamental consequences. Or look at countries that use AI to, I mean, we, have, we see all sorts of different evolutions. We see Asia, where AI is used very, very extensively for facial recognition up to scoring of people in order to reward good behavior and punish bad behavior. And we see the other extreme in, in, in California, where more and more cities abandon totally the use of street cams because they don't want to use facial recognition. And right now, all of this seems very much like um, an El Dorado, like a totally unstructured way mm -hmm. on every single level. And I think we need much more structure in this because we may unleash powers that are very difficult to roam in afterwards if we don't pay attention now. So unprecedented change ahead. I think we agree on that. So we will be picking up our conversation again in six months from now. <laughs> Michael, we will With see, pleasure. I'm sure, more changes. Thank you very much for taking the time to explaining uh, this ongoing phenomenon to us and to our listeners. And we look forward to keeping the conversation going. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes. 